for listening to the sermon podcast of the Potter's House in Virginia Beach. church with a worldwide vision for winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. We're a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Christian Fellowship Ministries. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. That is, tonight we thank those on the platform for your ministry and all that God is doing tonight. What a blessing. I want to encourage you tonight, let's, uh, let's turn to the Word of God. If you don't have a Bible tonight in your hands, I would encourage you to grab one. The ushers can get a couple of Bibles. If anybody needs a Bible, just lift up your hand, and we can get a few. I got one there. I got, uh, I got one. Can we give me two? Give, give me two. Is there three? There's three. There's two. There's one. Just kidding. Uh, I think we need two or three. <laughs> and so praise the Lord for all that He's doing. Let's turn this evening to the Bible. We want to look together, first of all, in Genesis chapter 3. And also, I want you to hold Matthew chapter 5. Genesis 3 and Matthew 5. It's been a long and winding road. (laughs) For this sermon series on the seven deadly sins... It's taken us more than seven weeks to get through them all, uh, due to various reasons. But uh, we are going to tie up this, uh, this series tonight as we look into the Word of God. And we have looked at the seven deadly sins along with their corresponding virtues. We looked, first of all, at the sin of pride, the deadly sin of lust, Greed, and all the others in between. And tonight, I'm stalling a little bit because my notes are on my computer. Hallelujah. We might need to call a testimony. (laughs) But God is faithful tonight. Hallelujah. Oh, Marquita, you got a testimony? Oh. Just got a leaky nose. Hallelujah. Thank God. Here we go. So tonight on this seventh and final deadly scene, we're going to look at the consequences, the causes, and the antidote. So I want you to open with me Genesis chapter 3, a familiar story in the Bible of this fall of man. But there's a detail here that gives us a clue about this seventh deadly sin of gluttony. And I want to read with you verse 6. It says, So the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Now pair that together with an unlikely 
beatitude that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. This is the corresponding virtue that goes along in contrast to the deadly sin of gluttony. Jesus said these words, Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to pray for just a moment tonight, asking God's blessing. Father, we are desperate once again for Your presence, for Your Spirit to move. Lord, I know that in my own strength and in my flesh, I'm not able to accomplish any good thing. So tonight, we are dependent on Your Spirit. We are dependent on your, on your power to move in our hearts. God, reveal Your truth to Your people. That we might be even more effective, God, for Your kingdom tonight. And we thank You for all that You're going to do in Jesus' mighty name. God's people would say, Amen. Amen. I want to first of all begin by examining the sin of gluttony. And what a fitting <laughs> uh, week that we have to examine this particular sin. Uh, so many times, the Thanksgiving holiday is associated with uh, filling your belly to overcapacity until your eyes go crossed and then closed. And then, uh, only a few hours later, just to find yourself again picking through the leftovers to make another sandwich. Am I the only one? But what we, if we're going to understand the sin of gluttony, we've got to understand that it is, it is far more than just overeating. Certainly, we could include overeating within the sin, but I believe it is a far more deadly of a sin. And to, to fully explain and understand this deadly sin, we need to look at the Garden of Eden. And we need to look at this very first sin with the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden. Now, I just read for you one verse in verse 6, but I want to also uh, give some uh, background to the story. Uh, if you want to get the full background, I would recommend that you go to the uh, church blog site. I put a post up there with some of the sermons of Pastor Richard Brooks as a kind of a memorial to him. And one of the sermons that he preached, I believe it was the last sermon that he preached in the last revival. It was a sermon entitled, In the Process of Time. It was a masterful sermon, and uh, he began his sermon by reminding us of all of the incredible blessings that Adam and Eve had in the garden. I want to uh, ask you to go back to Genesis and just skip back to the second chapter. It says that it gives us an explanation of what God gave to these first two people in the garden. It says in verse 8 that the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree. Say every tree. Every tree. He, he formed every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. This is why, by the way, that Adam and Eve, they were designed to live forever because they had access to the tree of life. They could eat of its fruit without any problem. And when you eat of the tree of life, it extends your mortality and it continues on. In heaven one day, when the resurrection takes place and we have a new heaven and a new earth, one day God will reveal again the tree of life to the nations. And that's why we'll be able to live in eternity. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so right there in the garden, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, listen to this, of every tree. Say every tree. every tree. Of every tree 
of the garden you may freely eat. Now you talk about a Thanksgiving feast. We're talking about every tree in the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So I just want to remind you of the incredible freedom and the incredible choice that Adam and Eve had in the garden. It could be that they lived for hundreds of years in this condition. Hundreds of years, perhaps, that they lived in fellowship and in obedience to the commandment of God. And in that condition, they were innocent, they were pure, they were holy, they were free from the stain of sin. What a wonderful existence that must have been. And of all the trees in the garden, think about how many trees there are. There's pear trees. There's apple trees. There's pomegranate trees. There's orange trees. There's grapefruit trees. Ew, grapefruit. There's plum trees. There's apricot trees. And I'm copying Pastor Brooks now because this is what he did in his sermon. He went through and spent about 10 minutes naming all the trees. And, and more than that, it was more than just the trees, there's also the bushes. There's the blueberry bushes, the raspberry bushes, the blackberry bushes. There's also all the vegetables, the tomatoes, the broccoli, the squash, the potatoes. Man, potatoes, you can make anything out of potatoes. The corn. Uh, Almost everything you eat in this world today has corn in it somewhere. Corn is an amazing, amazing food. And God said, of all of these things, you can have whatever you want. What incredible choice. What incredible variety. What incredible fulfillment that they must have had. Could you imagine them going and finding one day there's this nice, amazing, beautiful, tremendous, amazing, I'm starting to sound like Donald Trump, watermelon. Could you imagine finding a watermelon the very first time? They crack it open and they're like, oh, it's the sweetest thing they've ever tasted. And not only that, but it's refreshing. It's like drinking water, but better. Could you imagine all of the freedom that they had to choose any of the thousands? And probably we don't have as many fruits today as they used to have because now we see the world under a curse. Probably some of those plants and vegetables and fruits, probably they've gone extinct by now, but God said, I've got all of these trees for you to choose from, Adam and Eve. What a blessing it was. He says, there's just one. There's just one tree right here. It's just a little one. This is my tree. And I don't want you to touch it, okay? I don't want you to eat from the fruit because this is my tree. Adam and Eve said, oh, okay, no problem. We got all these thousands of trees. No problem, God. We'll, we'll, we'll never have to even think about that little tree. And for these hundreds of years, perhaps, who knows, even a thousand years, the Bible's not clear exactly how long they lived in that time frame. But by refusing to eat the fruit, when they were obedient to God, by staying away from that one tree, this was their one demonstration of their love for God, their obedience to His commandment. By declining the fruit, Adam and Eve were every day saying that the world that God made was a good world and that they believed Him and trusted Him with their life. In other words, tonight, abstinence 
from the tree that God said, don't eat that fruit, that was a sign for them of faithfulness and commitment. And so when the day came, in the process of time, one day they finally got to the end of all the trees. One day they had tasted all the peaches, all the pears, all the apples, all of the vegetables, and one day their mind began to wander. Perhaps Eve one day found herself munching on a, on, an, uh, on a big juicy orange or something, and she looks over and she says, huh, there's that one tree. I haven't tried that one yet. It happened in the process of time. And so when she began to consider this, eating of the fruit that God had said, do not eat, This was the rejection of God and His commandments. But even more than that, it was a rejection of a future married to Him. The taking of the fruit was an act of divorce. We live in a world that is cursed by divorce. It is a ripping apart of souls that have been joined together. And think about this act. Adam and Eve... They had access to thousands and thousands of trees. But they couldn't stay away from one that God told them to stay away from. This more than anything else tonight, it wasn't that they needed that fruit, right? Did they need to eat that fruit? There was no such thing as need for them. They had all of their needs fulfilled. It wasn't that they needed this. It was an excessive indulgence for Adam and Eve. The reason that they chose it was to go above and beyond what they believed God had for them. This is even part of the temptation. When the serpent began to beguile Eve, this was part of his explanation. He said, listen, Eve, God's holding back from you. He's hiding something from you. He knows that the day that you eat of this, your eyes will be open. And isn't that true? Every temptation has an element of truth in it. And the serpent still does the same today. He says, you're you're missing out. He says this to church kids, doesn't he? He says, you're missing out. The world is so exciting and so fun and so exhilarating. And you're missing out. You know, if you you just go out there and party and and get involved in drugs, alcohol, uh, friends that lead you to bad places, it'll be fun. You're missing out. Your eyes will be opened. We know that every church kid that the serpent lies to in that way, it is not because you need more acceptance. It is because you want something extra. Extra that God has not intended for you. This tonight, can I submit to you that this was not just about pride, as many people have argued. This first sin The eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was at its core an act of gluttony. It was when God said, you don't need this, and they said, we want more of it. That is the core of what it means to commit the sin of gluttony. So we connect gluttony with overeating, certainly it is part of that, but I want to tell you that overweight people are not always gluttons. There may be other reasons why people have uh, a little uh, fluff. They may have uh, low metabolism or, you know, a job that means sitting at a desk all day. 
But I want to tell you, even tiny little 80-pound anorexic woman could possibly be a raging glutton. It's possible. Weight is not an indicator of this sin. The skinny people suffer from gluttony just as easily and just as often as the more stout of us. The gluttony, the sin of gluttony, first and foremost, what you have to understand about this is that it's the sin of excessiveness. It's I want more. Why? Because I want more. That's the sin of gluttony. In America, it means I'm going to buy a third car. Why? I don't need a third car. I already got two cars. I'm just going to buy another one because I like that car. Am I going to step on any toes tonight? I might. I'm not sure. Gluttony is, uh, I've already had two plates, but I'm just going to have a third plate just in case. That's Thanksgiving, right? (laughs) Not because you need it, but because you wanted it. It's when your first two hobbies or your first two sports addictions aren't enough to satisfy you, so I'm going to start a third hobby. I'm going to start a third. Alcoholics, certainly, and drug users are gluttons, but so are web surfers, card players, business people. Uh, What's, what's the Facebook game, Farmville? Is it Farmville? Farmville. That, oh, I'm telling you, the, the app store is full of gluttony. Candy crush? You're crushing some candy, baby. I'm telling you, that is still the number one app in the app store. Because you get to the level 584, and you say to yourself, I have to get to 585. Why? Because I need to. No, 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 no. You really don't need to. But you want to. And so you'll pay the extra $2.99 to get the points so you can buy the coins, so you can get the gems, which get you to the next level. That is gluttony. Excessive. How many hours? Oh, Lord. If we could get people to read their Bible for the same amount of time they play stupid apps on your phone. We could take the world for Jesus. Anything that ends in the word aholic marks someone who suffers from gluttony. It is the opposite of moderation, but it is the the mark of a deprived soul. Let me give you an illustration tonight to help you understand. Imagine there's a person walking beside a lake. And as they're walking beside the lake, this is a person who just went out to the mall the weekend before and had purchased a pair of $500 shoes. It's a lot of money for a pair of shoes. He's enjoying his afternoon in the summer air when he looks to his left in the lake and he sees a small girl who has slipped off the dock and is now struggling to keep her head above the water. Now, could you imagine that this person looks at the situation and says, I could save that girl, but if I do, I'm going to ruin my $500 shoes. Don't you suppose tonight it would be immoral for him to watch a girl drown thinking about, I don't want to ruin my shoes. 
right? We can all agree that's immoral, that's not right, that's unethical. But surely tonight, what's the difference between this man saving his shoes and the man buying $500 shoes in the first place? What's the difference? The truth is that you could get a similar pair of shoes for 50 right? You can go on Amazon. You, you, many times, if you're paying more than $50 for a pair of shoes, do you know what you're paying for? You're paying for the name. You're paying for the brand. You're paying for the respect that you're going to get from other people when they see your shoes and recognize, whoa, look at those kicks, man. Whoa, you're walking on air, buddy. And you are paying for the presence, the pride that's getting lifted up. I want to tell you, tonight, he could have purchased the similar shoes that are going to get him down the road for 50 bucks, And he could have paid $450 for medicine, nutrition, clothing, schooling, missions work, world evangelism, so that an impoverished little girl on the other side of the world can live. We've got to understand tonight that the excessiveness, why do you need $500 shoes? I'll wait for a good answer. <laughs> See, this is the reason why, you know, I, I'm not against uh, buying nice things, you know, but I am against gluttony. The sin of gluttony says, I want to buy something incredible, excessive, amazing. Why? Because I need it. No. <laughs> no. The other mark of gluttony is that I believe this is the deadly sin that puts an edge on other deadly sins. Okay? It is a sharpener of other sins. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Pride. Pride is something that longs for applause. Oh, I just I can't wait until people recognize who I am. Right? That's pride. But gluttony means I need to be a diva. I need everyone to know what I'm eating for every meal on Instagram. I need everyone to suffer with me, right? Okay, so pride longs for the applause, but gluttony takes it to the next step. Envy. Envy, envy we talked about envy before. Envy looks at the neighbor and says, hmm, what I have isn't enough. I need what that guy has. That's envy. But gluttony begins to count Every detail. Slothfulness. It's not enough to be slothful, but gluttony abandons righteousness. Gluttony tonight says one million dollars isn't enough. It needs to be ten million dollars. Lust wants another woman. Gluttony wants them all. Wrath needs revenge. Gluttony wants to take a pound of flesh. At its most demonic point, the most deadly point of gluttony is when it amplifies. We have an amp over here on the stage. And what, an ampl ampl uh, what amplification does is it takes the sound produced by that bass guitar, and if you were just to take that bass guitar off the stage and pluck a string... You would barely be able to hear it even if you put your ear up close. All you would hear is boom. That's it. 
But what the amp does is it takes the electronic signal through the pickup and it blasts it through a 12-inch speaker so that Patrick can hear it on the other side of the room. Can I tell you, that's what gluttony does with every other sin. It takes it to the max, turns it up to 11. says, I don't care what the consequences are. I want what I want. That's the sin of gluttony. Are you with me tonight? Now, I want to turn to our corresponding virtue this evening. Because here we're going to find the answer. We're going to find the opposing viewpoint, the contrast of Scripture. And we find it in Matthew chapter 5. And I want you to also keep your finger in John chapter 12. Okay, we're going to read a story there that helps to explain why this beatitude is connected to the sin of gluttony. I want to speak about union with Christ. At its core... Gluttony means being married to something that is destroying you. Could you imagine if you were in a car that had no brakes and was going 80 miles an hour down the freeway? There's no way to get out. You are married to that vehicle which is careening down a hill to destruction. Okay, that's what gluttony means. You are attached, you are united together with something that is going to destroy you. In the kingdom of God, we are called to be married to something else, to be united with someone else, union with Christ. So here's the virtue in Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, to explain how that is related with the sin of gluttony, I want to turn to John chapter 12. This is a familiar story of Mary who anointed Jesus with the costly oil. John chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Now here's where Mary, verse 3, Mary took a pound of very costly oil. Say very costly. It was very costly. She anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now you have to understand a few things about the culture of the time in order to understand why this was such an amazing gift from Mary to Jesus. In those times, in those cultures, these, uh, these, these jars of oil would be an inheritance that is passed down through the generations. In other words, Mary's grandmother probably would have passed this costly oil down to her mother. And it was Mary's mother then who would pass that costly oil down to her. This would have been beyond value. It would have been worth uh, several years of income. I want you to think about how much money you make in two or perhaps three years of your time. That's a lot of money. And they say it was worth at least that much. It was an inheritance. So there was was monetary value in the materials. There was also family value. It was an inheritance that she had received. Let me also tell you why this was something that they did. So this was a sign that a woman was looking to be married. This gives her some some desirability from men to, to have 
uh, something of such value and worth. It speaks about someone's privilege, someone's family line. And so here's Mary. She has received this from her mother. Her mother has given it to her with the expectation, this is going to help you, girl, to get a man. And so this represents not just her past, it represents the family that she received. It also represents her present. It it, it is her last resort. If all else fails, at least she's got the oil that she could sell and that she could live off. But not only that, it represents her future. To throw this oil away means that she's throwing away part of her chance to have a life, to have a family to have children. And in those ancient days, a a woman who who didn't have a husband was seen as something lesser, lesser value. Now you can understand that when Mary comes into the house this day, it was a day that Jesus came and the Bible said they, they were throwing a party for Him. They were having a dinner. They were church folks like us. They know how to eat. And Mary shows up with this precious oil, this precious jar. Everyone knew what it was. And she began to walk toward Jesus and she began to break it apart. And she began to anoint Jesus with that costly oil. Do you see how the other people at that party, at that gathering, would have looked on her with disdain? What are you doing, Mary? Why would you do that? This is the inheritance from your family. There are many, many thousands of dollars worth of oil in that jar that you are breaking apart and spilling. Not only that, but you're going to be a lot less desirable to the boys. They're going to start looking at other women instead of you. Do you see what now why people would have been upset about this? What are you doing? No, no, no. No, please. Don't do that. As if with one voice, the whole room spoke up through the voice of Judas. And Judas began to rebuke her. It says in verse 5, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 350, 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then we have this nice little commentary from John. This he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Now listen tonight. Without this jar and its contents. She would not be seen as beautiful anymore. She would not be desirable. We could say that in this act of anointing Jesus, she has given her her identity, her status, and all of her hopes and dreams of a future with a family. It was from this moment that Jesus got His title, the Anointed One. Whenever you say the name Jesus followed by the word Christ, you know what you're saying? The word Christ literally means the anointed one. It means the one who has been set aside, set apart for the work of saving the world. When Mary did this incredible action of anointing Jesus, she was giving Him the title to prepare Him for the cross. In fact, it's chapter 12 that we read this story. And then the very next chapter, chapter 13, begins the Lord's Supper. It is after this action that Jesus, His face is set to the cross. And He begins to take actions 
to save the world. But here's what I want to show you. In that room, everyone's eyes would have been upon Mary as she poured out this costly oil on Jesus. And everyone would have been upset with her. Why would you do this? Could you imagine if her family was standing there watching her do this very expensive anointing? And when everyone is angry at her, Jesus spoke up for her. John chapter 12, verse 7. But Jesus said, leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. So Mary here had a revelation that everyone else did not have. Mary here, uh, she had been so touched and changed by Jesus. She, her life had been revolutionized in such a way that she understood something that the others there did not understand. By breaking this jar of costly oil, Mary was connecting herself to Jesus. Her past, her present, and her future. This is exactly what Jesus said. If you want to live, you have to die. If you want to save your life, you must lose it for my sake. This was an example of that truth in action. She was giving up her life to attach herself to be united with Christ in whatever was going to come next, which included the cross. She chose to die to herself for the sake of this soon-to-be-dead man. So here's what we're going to learn from that story tonight. Following Christ means more than just moderation. It means more than just staying away from gluttony. Following Christ and being married to Him, your future, your past, and your present, it means having a zeal and a passion for the things of God. And when that happens tonight, there will always be a collision. When you make the decision tonight to really live for God, like Mary did, there will be a collision. There will be a clash of opinions around you. I remember when I got saved, it was a very polarizing event among my friends. I didn't have a whole lot of them. But among my friends, there was a polarization. Some of my friends were happy. Hey, Adam, great. Good to hear that you're going to church. You needed it, bro. I had other friends. They didn't like it. They said, man, where you been? You're acting weird. You're acting crazy now. What's What's the problem? You're going to church all the time? And these are friends that I had had since I was in elementary school, right? people that I loved and cared about, people that I had spent time with, people that I uh, mess around with. And, and finally, I started living for God, and I realized that after I was saved, I would hang out with these people. I'd try to have fun with them like I used to. But something had changed. Something had changed. And now it seemed like whenever I would hang out with these certain individuals, it would lead me into my old way of thinking. It would lead me into the old way of processing life. It would lead me back to temptations and sins that I didn't want to be a part of anymore. There was a collision of opinions. There was a collision of worldviews. And all of a sudden, people that I cared about, I found myself making a hard decision. I can't hang out with you anymore. It's not because of you. It's because I'm different now. There was a, there was a collision. It's like in the weather when a cold front collides with a warm front, what happens? Thunderstorms. 
lightning, thunder. And this is also true in the kingdom. When the righteousness of God's people impact a sinful world, the result is a contention. There's a battle that takes place. This is what we saw in Mary's life. What she did that day would have made everybody in the room angry except for one. Except for Jesus, who stood up and defended her. He said, you leave her alone. This is also true of many, many people in our world today who are doing good things. Who are doing things for the sake of righteousness. When Mother Teresa was in Calcutta caring for those children that were discarded in the gutters, not everyone praised her for it. Not at the time. She was insulted every day for affecting the karma of the city. When Martin Luther King was on the march, marching for brothers and sisters, marching for the sake of all humanity to be reconciled, he was not admired by everyone. He had enemies on every side. He was imprisoned and ultimately killed for what he did. And of course, our Savior, Jesus, who lived the perfect life, who came from heaven, man, who came like a light shining in the darkness to give hope and peace. He came healing the sick, preaching the truth. He came feeding people, fish hoagies. What an amazing life Jesus led. But can I tell you, Jesus, he had a lot of enemies. Not everybody was happy to see Jesus show up. And for a life of perfection, what did he receive? Condemnation, death, crucifixion. This is always true. And I want to tell you tonight, if you have no element of persecution in your life, I would question if there is any element of righteousness in your life. It means tonight that in someone's life that there can either be the spirit of gluttony, giving myself to the flesh, or it's the spirit of righteousness. That spirit of righteousness will have an effect on your life. Not everyone's going to be happy about you serving God. Not everyone is going to agree with your decision to follow Jesus. It's not going to be easy every time. I lost the amens a few minutes ago. I'm going to, I'm going to keep going though. The question I want to leave with you with tonight is who are you united who are you united to? Because at the end of the day At the end of your life, it's going to be one or the other. Jesus said that you cannot serve God and mammon. You're either going to be married to one or the other. You can't be halfway pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant, right? This is true in the kingdom. You're either saved or you're not saved. I'm, I'm on the process, pastor. Process of what? Born again. It means you're either on your way to hell or on your way to heaven. There are some things in life that require uh, understanding and shades of gray to understand that some things are not completely black and white. But there are some things we can say. Jesus spoke in these terms. He said, look, you're either saved or you're not. The question tonight is are you living to satisfy the desires of your flesh? Or are you married and united to Christ no matter where? That takes you. The glutton is one who is married to their flesh and will allow it to drag him to an eternal divorce from God. 
Philippians 3, verse 18, Many walk, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. Now here's something that is very deceiving. Because it is possible tonight to have religion, to have church attendance, to have a so-called prayer life, to have the image of righteousness, to have respect of a community, and still be married to your flesh. Jesus looked at the Pharisees. These Pharisees, I want to tell you, they were more righteous than every person here. They paid their tithe. They sent out missionaries to the mission field. They went to themselves. They did things. They memorized the Old Testament front to back. They were in the services. They performed sacrifices. They were in the temple every day. They stood on the street corner to pray, which is more than we could say about many of us tonight. But you know what they got wrong? Jesus said you were like whitewashed tombstones. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, full of dead men's bones. And so don't tell me, Pastor, I'm in church and I've got a tie on, and so I'm not a glutton. The definition tonight of a glutton is someone who is married to the desires of flesh. And you're either going to make the choice to divorce yourself from the flesh and be united to God or you're going to divorce yourself from God to be united with flesh. At the end of your life, which one is it going to be for you? Which one is it going to be for your family and your home? Because here's the promise that Jesus gave to the righteous. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteous because theirs is the kingdom of God. Go back to Mary for a second. When Mary made this costly, costly sacrifice, Jesus spoke to her, and He said, Leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. The poor you have always, but me you do not have always. Another way we could see that tonight is that Mary had an eternal perspective that night. She could see ahead into the future. She could see ahead into eternity. She had a view on the kingdom of heaven that everyone else in that room didn't have. That's why she was able to divorce herself from things that would benefit her in the here and now in order to be united to Christ. And even with all the persecution that it would bring. This is not a Joel Osteen sermon tonight. I'm not aiming for everyone to be smiling and have your every day of Friday. What we need tonight is union with Christ no matter what it might bring. What about you tonight? You can either be united with Christ and divorce yourself from the world or you can be united with your flesh and ultimately be divorced from the kingdom God. Let's bow our heads for a few moments as we consider these things tonight. 
thank you again for listening. Do you want to receive updates from our church in your inbox? Make sure to sign up at our website, vbph.org. If this message has been a blessing to you, would you consider supporting our ministry with a generous donation? Please visit our website at vbph.org and scroll down to find the Give button at the bottom of the page. We would be so grateful for your support. Until next time, love God and love people. Oh, 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 oh.